Today is a Resurrection Sunday. It is a Sunday the Christian church sets aside to specially and specifically celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the hope anchoring event in human history. Also, this is our 12th week into our study of the book of Genesis. And so today, we are going to have two sermon texts, both of which Pastor Curtis just read. Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 through 24, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 19. Usually, on a special Sunday like today, uh, usually I would break from our normal sermon series and devote the entire message to uh, another passage that would be particular to what it is that we're celebrating. However, today I decided not to do that. And I hope you will see, I hope you will understand why by the time we're through looking at God's Word. Because Genesis 3 verses 20 through 24 actually fuels our celebration of Easter. So three sequential headings today. Paradise lost, paradise barred, and paradise regained. Paradise lost, paradise barred, paradise regained. And that's what we want to work through. Let's pray. Our great Father in heaven, we're thankful that we have much to be happy about today. I thank you, God, that we are not to be pitied. Uh, Thank you that our faith is not futile. Thank you that we are not still in our sin. And because, as your Apostle Paul argued in 1 Corinthians 15, because Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. You raised him from the dead, God. He conquered death. And so He has proven Himself to be uh, victorious. And His promises have been fulfilled. And we now know that we can have hope in His victory over death in light of our inability to have our own victory over death. So... God, we ask this morning that you would use your word and you would use your Holy Spirit, God, that you would come down and fill your people, that you would come down and that you would go between my mouth and these ears, that your word would be preached faithfully, that you would ensure that, that your word would be heard faithfully, that you would ensure that, that hearts today would be changed, that you would ensure that. For those of us who are here and are believers, God, we ask that you would change us with truth today. And for those who are here today who are not believers, for those who are here and are not believers and are not Christians and know it, God, we pray that this would be helpful for them today. And pray that you would do a a work in their hearts and, and in their minds to to hear new things, to understand new things that otherwise they won't understand. God, I also pray for a special group that may be here today, those who would call themselves believers, those who would call themselves Christians but are not. Those who have heard things that are not true, those who have banked their hope on false realities those who have subscribed to an unbiblical Christianity. God, I pray that You would awaken them today. God, I pray You would not allow them to go another day in delusion, but that they would see their sin. They would see the distance between them and You, and they would see the way to You through Christ, Your Son. So please do this through your word today. We pray these things and ask these things hopefully in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Paradise lost. Genesis chapter 3, 
beginning in verse 22. Let me read the first half of verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. God says, Behold, the man has become. So, a change, God is saying, a change has taken place in the man. There's been an evolution. He has become something. And here God says, He has become like one of us. One of us. This is still one God, but it is one God existing in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So this is God the Father, the Trinitarian God, talking among Himself. And this is what has happened. Man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. So the story to this point goes like this, that Adam and Eve were, were created, sustained, and loved by God. Lavishly loved by God. Created by God, given life by God, sustained, life sustained by God, and loved by God. Not just created and and left alone, but created and then God's love being poured out on them. Adam was given uh, a beautiful garden. He was given a, a beautiful place to live. He was given great food to eat. He was given perfect weather. He was given a wife, a wife whom he was in perfect peace and harmony with, a helper suitable for him, a helper fit for him, the perfect companion for him. But the greatest thing actually that Adam had was God. This was the greatest thing he had in the garden. The greatest thing that Adam had in the garden is that he walked with God, that he talked with God, that he had he had communion with God. So Adam's existence before he evolved, Adam's existence was was pure paradise. Martin Luther said this, I am fully convinced that before Adam's sin, his eyes were so sharp and clear that they surpassed those of the lynx and eagle. He was stronger than the lions and the bears whose strength is very great and he handled them the way we handle puppies. He may be right. Adam lived in paradise. The Bible calls this the Garden of Eden. This was the Garden of Eden. And the condition of Adam was, or the state of Adam, was a condition and a state of innocence. He knew good. He did not know evil. He was in a place called paradise. No trouble. No potential trouble. No trouble within, no trouble without. No pain, no suffering, no worry, no anxiety, no depression, no guilt, no shame, no loneliness, no frustration, no shame. Just the man, the woman, And God, living in peaceful harmony, walking and living with one another. This is not the world we live in. This paradise has been lost. This is not the world we live in. Because the man has become, God said, like one of us, knowing good and evil. Adam and Eve sinned. Adam and Eve rebelled. Adam and Eve went their own way. They disobeyed God. They were tempted by Satan. Satan came into the garden. The enemy of God. Satan came into the garden with his teaching. He opened his textbook with Adam and Eve and told them things that were not true. Yet Adam and Eve swallowed what they were taught by Satan and discarded the truth that was given to them by God. And so when that happened, they were no longer innocent, but rather they came to know good and evil. But they came to know evil 
in a way that you and I know evil, but in a way that God does not know evil. Now, God knows evil and God knew evil, but God knows evil observationally. God knows evil extrinsically. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't come to know evil observationally. They came to know evil experientially. They came to know evil intimately is what has happened. This is what they have become. They came to know evil intrinsically. God knows evil as something without. Adam and Eve knew evil as something within. You and I know evil as something within. So when Adam and Eve turned from God and went their own way, it did not go well. Turning from God does not go well. For you and I. Turning from God does not go well. Going our own way does not go well. And this is the difference... If you will, this is the difference between paradise and the present day. This is why this description of paradise is so foreign to us, because we live in a world that is that is marred with sin. And sin is the root. Sin is the root of worry and pain and sorrow and depression and frustration, and loneliness, and and tears, and guilt, and shame. All these painful things that we experience in this fallen world are the result of human beings shaking their fist at God. Like Adam and Eve shook their fist at God. Who are you to tell me what to do, God? Who are you to tell me what to do? Your word, your commands, your call on my life, it does not agree with my opinions. By the way, it rarely does. And I don't like what what you would have me do. And it doesn't make sense, God. It doesn't even make good sense. And experience has taught me And professors have taught me. And my life has taught me. And my parents have taught me. And on and on and on. And so we go our own way. When we go our own way, we like Adam and Eve, we shake our fist at God and say, I do not believe you. I do not believe your word. I do not believe you're as good as you say you are. I do not believe sin is as bad as you say it is. I do not believe you have my best interest in mind. I do not believe you know what's best for me. And so all of those beliefs precede I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to sin. And this is a shaking our fist at God. And so this is what we all do. And this is how we all know good and evil. Now, a sad reality is that some of us don't know that paradise has been lost. And some of you may not even care that paradise has been lost. Some of you may not even be, be asking very important questions regarding the condition of your soul before a holy God. Some of you, God has handed over to comfort and riches. See, we automatically think that, well, comfort and riches are a blessing from God, but not necessarily. For the one who loves God and the one who believes God, then comfort in this life and riches in this life may very well be blessing from God. Because the believer, the one who loves God, when they receive these things, they they acknowledge that as being received from the hand of God, it draws them closer to God and it deepens their affections for God and they grow Closer to God. But for the one who does not believe and for the one who does not love God, when he is given comfort and riches, it repels him from God. It does not draw him near to God. I'm fine. And this is an epidemic in our I'm fine culture. I mean, we live as a culture in an unprecedented, comfortable way. 
Many of us live more comfortably than anyone has lived, circumstantially more comfortably than anyone on the face of the earth has ever lived. And so the temptation in comfort is to is to say, well, I'm physically fine. Physically, things are going well. So spiritually, I must be fine. And it can keep us from evaluating our souls. It can keep us from digging deeper. It can keep us from going past the veil because we're we're just not faced with discomfort. We're not faced with with hitting rock bottom. We're not faced with desperation. And so that can be an unhelpful thing in your life. So some of you... Paradise is lost, but you don't even realize that paradise is lost. You've created such a paradise here on earth. You've tried to create a heaven here on earth that you have become numb to your condition before a holy God. And the question is, do you consider, do you think about the state of your soul before God? There is not a more important question for you and I to ask ourselves. This is what Adam and Eve did. And so far we have seen in Genesis that God's response is nothing but gracious. How does God respond to Adam and Eve? We're going to see here how he responds again. But so far he has responded graciously. In other words, Adam and Eve have learned and you and I learned that God is kind to undeserving sinners. This is God's grace. He is a God who, while he could only exercise his justice and judgment righteously against sinners, that God is not just just, he's also merciful. We learn this about God's character. And up until this point with Adam and Eve, they have learned that God is gracious, that he is kind to undeserving sinners, and God has not given one lecture to them on his grace. It's all been shown to them. God has not brought, I want to sit you down, and and the sermon today is, I am a gracious God. Let me give you some scripture references and take down some notes. And God has not told them that he is gracious. He has showed them that he is gracious. He showed them this by sparing their life. They disobeyed. He said, when you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. They're not dead. God spared their life. God talked tenderly to them. Do you remember how God came and talked to them in the garden? He talked tenderly to them. He asked them questions. He dialogued with them. He sought to draw the truth out of them. He talked tenderly. God disciplined them. In other words, God brought painful and helpful consequences to what they had done. Just like you, right? With your children, If you love your children, you bring painful and helpful consequences to their life. There's going to be a consequence for what you've done because you love them. God loves Adam and Eve. God made a promise to them. He made a promise that they would have a family and one would come from their family who would rescue them, who would heal them, who would deliver them. From this state, this condition that their soul was now in before God. And then God clothed them. So what is God doing? He is showing them, I am gracious, I am gracious, I am gracious. And now more grace. More grace. The second half of verse 22. Now. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. You see what happened there? This is not a misprint in your Bible. God begins a sentence and he doesn't finish it. It is an incomplete sentence. And in this sentence, he mentions the tree of life. There were two trees in the garden. Tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There was a tree of life, if you will, and there was a tree of death. God said there is this tree that is of death. Do not eat of this tree. Everything in this garden is for you. I love you. Enjoy this garden, but do not forget that you are accountable to me. Do not eat this fruit from this tree. 
Do not disobey me. Do not go my own way. Take my word from it. The stove is hot, son. Don't touch it. You don't need to learn that lesson through experience. Just listen to me. God is telling Adam and Eve, stay away. Trust me, if you eat of this tree, you will die. And God was saying, if you eat of this tree, you will be alienated from me. You will be separated from me. There will be a big difference between you and me. I will be holy and without sin, and you will be unholy and with sin. So a break will come, and a severing will come in this glorious relationship that we have here in this paradise. So do not eat this fruit. I am a holy God, God was telling them. I am a holy God without sin, and I cannot and I will not behold or tolerate sin. So don't eat this tree. Eat this tree. Eat everything else in this garden. There's this tree of life. God is saying, eat the food that I give you. Eat this tree and be reminded forever that I am giving you life. Eternal life was associated with eating the fruit of this tree so that they would know and understand that Eternal life, living forever with God, is something that He provides us with. It's something that He gives to us. It's something that comes from God and we don't have on our own. So these two trees. God says you can eat everything in this garden, but do not eat this tree. And so here God brings up the tree and He begins a sentence and He doesn't finish it. There is a thought. There is a thought here that God begins to articulate, but it is too unbearable for him to finish. There's a thought that God begins to articulate and is too unbearable for God to finish. And he stops his sentence. What is this? that is unbearable even in the mind of God. God says, now, now. In other words, now that he has become a sinner. Now that Adam has become sinful. Lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Here's the unbearable thought from a loving God. The unbearable thought from a loving God is His children living forever in a sinful condition. It's not like they could just run into the garden and eat this fruit from the tree of life and their sin would be gone. The idea here is if they are allowed back in here and to have eternal life, they will be imprisoned eternally in sin. So God does something about that. Paradise barred. Paradise has been lost by man and now paradise is barred by God. What does God do? What does God graciously do? Verse 23 and 24. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see those phrases? God sent him out. God drove out the man. This may, like the curse, not sound or feel gracious, but it is. It is. What we have in verses 23 and 24 is God kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden. They're being evicted. 
expelled from paradise. But what does God do? God does not just kick them out of the garden. He bars them from re-entry. What is he? God puts up a no trespassing sign outside the entrance to the Garden of Eden. He doesn't just kick them out and then go hide the garden somewhere. You know, blindfold them, put their head on a baseball bat, spin them around a dozen times, say, good luck finding your way back. He doesn't just kick them out of the garden. He kicks them out of the garden and then he bars them from re-entering the garden. And and how does he, he do that? It says that he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So what we find out is that this Garden of Eden, this paradise, eternal life, it is fiercely guarded by God's heavily armed warriors. This is the cherubim. This is like God's SEAL Team 6. You do not mess with cherubim. When you see these warriors from God show up in your Bible, it is a big deal. Here they're guarding the garden. In Ezekiel's vision, they're seen as these awesome throne bearers. They're seen as guardians of the Holy of Holies on the veil and the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the very presence of God, which was in the most holy place or the Holy of Holies, the inner room of God's tabernacle, His temple, that only the high priest could go into this room one time a year. They tied a rope around his ankle when he went in there just in case he died. That's how serious this room was. And do you remember what was on the mercy seat? What was on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant? It was cherubim. Don't, no trespassing. This is off limits. This is holy ground. God is holy. You are not Holy, you should not be here. You do not belong here. Don't take another step. These warriors are armed with flaming swords. So God kicks them out of the garden and he bars them from the garden. The cherubim's flaming sword means that there is no way back to the tree of life without the shedding of blood. So here's this armed guard with a flaming sword who is ready to use it. And no one will get past this sword without blood being shed. No trespassing. This is what God is saying. This place... God's presence, the Garden of Eden, paradise, eternal life. The place of the holy is not accessible to the unholy. This is why in the temple there was a veil, a thick veil between that holy room and that most holy room. God is holy. God says, Adam and Eve, I love you. I love you. I'm going to be gracious to you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to put clothes on you. I'm going to make you promises. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to bring reconciliation. But you need to understand something. I will not behold sin. And I will not tolerate sin. And I'm driving you out of this sinless place. For you do not belong here. And I'm going to bar your re-entry with a flaming sword. God does not allow greedy, murderous, indifferent, porn-watching, gossip-spreading, temper-raising, fist-shaking, treacherous sinners to waltz back into paradise. 
Jeff Thomas put it this way. Here is a God who is of holier eyes than to behold iniquity. Would you have him any other way? Do you want a God who beholds pornographic movies? A God who delights in beholding gratuitous violence? A God who goes to the arena? A God who beholds the gas ovens and the shuffling lines of people waiting their turn to die and that he is unmoved? Our God does not shrug his shoulders at sin. He is of holier eyes than to behold iniquity. He is a God who will not pardon sin unless his wrath against it is propitiated. So paradise is not only lost by Adam and Eve, but paradise is barred. Here's what this means for us sitting in this room today. You and I cannot save ourselves. Amen. This is not just something that Adam and Eve lost and can regain. This is something that was barred from Adam and Eve. God prevents any of us from saving ourselves. There is a flaming sword that is preventing you and I from defiling God's presence with our presence. This is what God is communicating when he bars Adam and Eve from paradise. So the way, make no mistake, the way back to God. We want to get back to God. The way back to God is not hard. The way back to God is impossible. It is not a difficult road. It is an impossible road. People will say, you know, I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life. And then... When I'm done doing what I want to do, I will turn to God. Some of you reasoned like that. Some of you may be reasoning like that right now. Well, there's things I want to experience. There's things that I want to do. And I know enough to know that God's a gracious God and He will forgive me when I turn back to Him. The way back to God is barred with a flaming sword. And God's warriors are in place. This is why God's people say things like David said in Psalm 86.1, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy, not smart and capable. Not, I am spiritual and intelligent. But we are a poor and needy people. This is why we did not break from our sermon series on Easter Sunday. This is how this text fuels our celebration of Easter. Because properly understanding this text, properly understanding this text means properly understanding your poor and needy condition. When we properly understand this text, We understand our poor and needy and hopeless condition. Now, let me just add one thing to that last sentence. A parenthesis. We understand from this text our poor and needy and hopeless condition. And let me just say after hopeless, unless God does more. If there is a sword here, and if this is barred, and if we're kicked out, and we are not allowed re-entry, and there is a no trespassing sign, and if our Bible ends there, and if Revelation ends there, then this is completely and totally hopeless. And it is hopeless, and your life is hopeless unless God does more. And if God doesn't do more, then there is no hope for you. You will not get back to God. You will not find your own way. You are not allowed to carve your own way. You're not allowed to make your own path. There is only one way back to God. And that way back to God is barred from you. 
You are not allowed re-entry. Hear that and let that ring. And that is the end of the story unless God does more. Paradise regained. Paradise regained. God made a promise in chapter 3, verse 15. And God made a provision for Adam and Eve in verse 21. If you put the words of that promise and the way of that provision together. If you put the words of that promise and the way of that provision together, here's what you get. God would send a man to rescue his people through the shedding of his own blood and the destruction of Satan. This is the gospel. This is good news. Do you see why it is good news? That God does more. If you put the words of this promise and the way of this provision together, it's communicated even here early on and fulfilled in Jesus Christ that God would send a man to rescue his people through the shedding of his own blood and the destruction of Satan. So how would God's people get back to paradise? How will they, as sinners deserving death, get by the flaming sword? The answer, the gospel. So this does not say, and we do not say, and we do not teach that there is no way back to God. There is a way back to God, but that way back to God is barred. You and I are unholy. God is holy. And there is nothing we can do on our own to make ourselves holy and fit for God or fit for heaven. There is nothing we can do. If we only commit one sin in this lifetime, and we don't, we are infinitely offensive to a holy God who has done nothing but good to us and for us. And so the way back to God is barred by this flaming sword, which teaches us there is no way back into the garden unless there is the shedding of blood. The way back to the garden is Jesus. That Jesus will die for His people. When Jesus died on the cross... Jesus was slain by the flaming sword of God. Have you heard that before? Who killed Jesus? There are many answers to that. True. The Romans killed Jesus. The Pharisees killed Jesus. The mockers and the crowd who shouted for his crucifixion killed Jesus. The Roman centurions who nailed the nails into the hands and feet of Jesus killed Jesus. But understand, God killed Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. Isaiah 53 makes it clear that it was the Lord's will to crush Him. That Jesus Christ, God, went willingly to the cross, went willingly to the cross to die, went willingly to the cross so that the wrath of God, the anger of God against your sin and my sin would be poured out not on you and me, but on a substitute, on one who would die in our place, and it is Jesus Christ. The flaming sword that the cherubim holds was buried in Christ. It was sheathed in Christ. It pierced Christ who was killed so that the way to the garden violently could be made open to sinners who love Jesus. 
John 14.6, Jesus said to him, you understand why Jesus said this, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way back to God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. That which the first Adam lost, the second Adam regained. Well, some of you may think that is quite a bedtime story. That is a a very curious and interesting and spiritual, religious maybe, explanation for why things are the, the way they are. And I can see how that would be really helpful for some people. People who need something like that. I may even like some of the truths that are represented in that story. But why would I ever believe that? Why would I ever believe that? Why would I ever reorganize my entire life around that. Well, happy Easter. The reason to believe this is because the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so when the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that validated everything that ever came out of his mouth. No one, friends, has risen from the dead. One man. You have men like Lazarus who rose from the dead only to die again. Jesus never died again, and Jesus never will die again. Jesus is resurrected. So to put it real simply, this is why the resurrection is a big deal. The resurrection is a big deal because if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then we listen to Jesus. And we love Jesus. And we follow Jesus. And when whatever He says, we believe. And whatever He tells us to do, yes, sir. Why? Because you rose from the dead. No one does that. This is why Jesus is called King of Kings. That's why He's called Lord of Lords, beginning and end. Validated in His resurrection every one of His claims and accomplished victory over Satan and accomplished redemption for all those who would believe. As 1 Corinthians 15 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy that he be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Do you hear Paul's argument? But Christ has been raised from the dead which undoes now everything that he just said in that text and makes those things that could be true, untrue. Jesus was raised from the dead. Therefore, our preaching is not in vain. Preaching the gospel is not in vain. Faith is not in vain. Faith is not futile. We are not, as believers, still in our sins. Believers who have died have not perished. They live and reign with Christ. There is no reason to pity believers in Jesus Christ. Because, what is Paul's argument? Because Christ has been resurrected from the dead. Jesus now wields the sword as victor. So friends, there are two ways for you and I to live. And there are only two ways for you and I to live. There is to be faithful or there is to be faithless. There is to follow and pursue and to love God. And there is to turn from God. There is to go God's way. There is to go our own way. We all stand before an eternal life with God that is barred from us. And the only way through that barring is by faith in Jesus Christ. By believing the gospel that we proclaim today. By loving this God by obeying this God, by enjoying this God, by proclaiming this God, living faithfully to Him. Not a God you make up. Not a God you hear somewhere else. Not a God that you compile. Not a God that you fashion based on the verses that you like and don't like. But God as He is. Fully taken. Fully believed in. Fully trusted. Fully loved. By His people. This is the only way for us through this flaming sword if we come in the train of Jesus whose blood was shed on our behalf. We as human beings, as sinful human beings, just naturally think that somehow and in some way paradise might be regained by our own efforts. And friends, that is false. Paradise cannot be regained by your own efforts. There is not enough good for you to do. There simply is not enough good for you to do. We have been expelled from the garden. And friends, the only way for your soul to be at peace with God... The only way for you to be reconciled with God, the only way for you to have life and have it to the full, the only way for you to to, to have a restored relationship with God, the only way is through Jesus Christ. And every single one of us must deal with Jesus Christ. You will either run to Him or you will run from Him. And if you are not running to Him, you are running from Him. So if you're visiting with us, at this point in our service, everything has been leading up to this point, to our opportunity to respond to God's work through His Word and in our hearts. And we do that through communion. So if you're here today, And if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, and if you love God and trust God and know Him and believe Him and obey Him and enjoy Him and proclaim Him, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, 
And if this is your church home or maybe you have another church home where you are a committed member of the body of Christ, if you fall into that category and you are here with us today, we hope you'll share this meal with us. We have leaders up here who want to serve you and we'll take bread and we'll take juice that represents the body of Christ and represents the blood of Christ. And before that, I will pray. And we want to give you just a couple moments for personal reflection. There's a couple moments before the leaders are up here. And my encouragement to all of you would would simply be this. Respond to Christ. Respond to His Word. You will respond to Him in one way or another today. It is impossible to not respond. But friends, my encouragement would be that you would turn to Christ and be saved. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this Easter Sunday. I thank you for your word and thank you for your truth, God. God, I ask that even now, that if your word is foolishness to some here, if your gospel is foolishness to some here, that it would now, that it would become the power of God in their lives. And I pray that you would open their hearts and open their ears. God, I pray for myself and others like me as followers of you, yet still sinful. God, I ask you would open my heart. I ask you would open my ears. I ask you would convict me of my sin. I ask you would mortify sin in my life. Draw me nearer to you. Make me more like Jesus. Make me more holy. And help me, God, though, in, in, all, in all of my efforts to, to live in a way that pleases and glorifies you. Let me never, God, hang any, any of my boasting or any of my security on these things that I do. But help me now and forever to rely completely on the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, as the sacrifice which gives me readmittance into your great garden, into eternal life promised with you. We love you and give you praise, glory, and honor in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.